It's getting close to the end of the summer, and right now your backyard is probably filled with insects. As you watch them swarm, trying to swat away the ones that bite, you might be tempted to think of them as mindless drones, buzzing around without much of a plan for the next hour, let alone next week. This conception of insects goes back a long way. In the 17th century, René Descartes argued that only humans are conscious, and that all other organisms are simply mindless machines. That they react in pre-programmed, automatic ways to the world around them, without forethought or self-awareness. Sure, they can migrate thousands of miles, as we heard about monarch butterflies from Anurag Agrawal in episode 26. And yes, they can mimic other insects, like the rove beetles we heard about on episode 21 with Joe Parker. But all of those insects have small brains, and what appear to us to be simple, straightforward lives. How could they possibly be intelligent, much less conscious? This episode may change your mind. Today, we're talking with Lars Chitka, a biologist at Queen Mary University of London, who studies the evolution of sensory systems and cognition in insects. Lars studies bees, bumblebees mostly. He investigates how they and other insects solve complex problems. His results show unequivocally that they're incredibly flexible and creative. They clearly are not organic robots. In Lars's experiments, bees solve all kinds of puzzles. They learn how to roll balls onto targets by watching other bees. They secure rewards by using tools. And they even plan for the future and store representations of objects in their minds. This last trait, many scientists thought was restricted just to vertebrates. Insects' ability to solve novel problems hints at some kind of intelligence or cognition, but does this mean that they are conscious? Lars thinks so. At the very least, he says they aren't just automatons. You could, of course, produce a machine that could solve all the tasks that um, have so far been devised uh, by researchers to be solved by bees, but can they solve the next thing? Can they, could, could a robot pre-programmed, say, to solve a string-pulling puzzle and a, and a ball-rolling task also solve previously unexplored things that, um, that, that researchers haven't um, confronted bees with yet? And that, I think, is the critical question. Lars says insects may have evolved something like consciousness so that they can make better predictions about the future as they move through an unpredictable world. In other words, it's entirely possible that we share a key trait with the mosquitoes terrorizing your backyard barbecue. So think twice next time you go to SWAT. On this episode of Big Biology, we talk with Lars about the best way to define consciousness, how he searches for it in insects, and why understanding consciousness in other critters is important. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It's going to be a, a lot of fun to talk about um, arthropod cognition. And I think maybe that's the place to start. So uh, I know it's not a, a small task to ask you to define cognition, but you did participate in a, um, a journal article not too long ago, Current Biology, where uh, many folks from many disciplines were asked to define cognition. So I'm wondering what's your definition and was there a consensus definition that you, you sort of saw among your colleagues in that issue? Um, so how would I define cognition? Um, that's not an easy task. So we've known for a long time that looking at bees specifically, that they can learn to associate flower colors or scents or patterns with the reward. That I would 
say is, is clearly learning behavior, but it's it's uh, too simple to qualify as as cognition. So as cognition, I would classify processes that um, combine, for example, um, information from multiple different uh, occasions of learning so that an animal extracts a rule, for example. In a similar way, I think f certain forms of predicting the actions of one's own the outcomes of one's own actions, I think, would qualify as as cognition, where you find insight learning or you you tailor your actions to a desired outcome rather than having simply learned them as a result of trial and error learning from past experience would also qualify as cognition. So th that is not necessarily the um, consensus. So you will find that some People have a very sort of Catholic, all-encompassing view of cognition um, in that they sort of view any form of information processing in animal sensory systems um, as aspects of their cognition. What's your perspective on collective cognition in insect colonies? Is that also something that doesn't make a lot of sense to talk about? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me to talk about collective cognition. Um, there are certainly very impressive collective phenomena in insect colonies. So the, the swarming behavior in honeybees is one example, where the old queen, jointly with several thousand or even ten thousands of workers, leaves the hive and then um, scouts fan out in all directions from the swarm cluster to locate a, a suitable new cavity for um, the colony to establish itself in. And the scouts then bring back the information about the location of these target destinations to the swarm. They advertise them and ultimately, after a few days' deliberation, if you wish, the, the swarm decides on one of these locations and it, it sort of looks like the like in essence the, the swarm is sort of behaving as as one individual as a brain but i mean if you examine the phenomenon in detail then of course the individual the, the decisions that are made are still all made by individuals according to certain rules it looks like they're all coherently doing something but there are still as many individual minds in there as there are um, individual bees. So, so we also have uh, read your current opinions in neuroscience paper recently, and um, just just amazed at the diversity of of complex cognitive processing that insects are capable of doing. And in that in that paper, you listed a bunch of examples, and we want to get we want to get to some of them. Um, but I just want to ask you to contrast, maybe first of all, older ideas about about insects being hardwired with a limited, um, you know, behavioral and cognitive repertoire versus the emerging paradigm that, you know, you and others are leading about uh, the complexity of that, that behavior. So, so what, what are the old ideas about insects and, and, you know, when and how have those changed? Um, yes. So there is an acknowledgement that um, social insect behavior can be very complex. People are aware that termites, ants, bees, and so on, build very impressive architectures that um, come with 
sort of an elaborate d division of labor with um, well-organized defense of the colony and and brood rearing and climate control inside the colony and so on, but that all of this is is hardwired that they're operating essentially as as little machines that are pre-programmed that sort of function like a a Swiss army knife that has all kinds of different functions, but whatever functions it does have are built into to the to the machine right from the start, and um, that's the stereotype. I think that image has has changed a little bit in in recent decades. Lars, how much is that sentiment linked to the brain size? I mean, that always seems to be a theme that I remember that, you know, insects have to be simple because their brains are so much smaller and they include so many fewer neurons and synapses than mammals. So is that the conviction? Is that where this comes from? Perhaps. Um, so I think certainly many people working on the behavioral ecology of uh, brain sizes in mammals take this view that there's some um, inherent complexity in in larger brains. But um, if you look, if you browse back through um, the literature, then um, you find that very early on people have, um, have expressed views that would counter that. So from the neurobiological side, Ramon y Cajal was one of the founding fathers of um, neuroscience. Um, so he likened um, the larger brained vertebrates with, with rough grandfather clocks and insect brains with a fine pocket watch. Nonetheless, I guess that stereotype, large brain means larger, uh, higher intelligence still persists. We, I have to ask you first to take uh, listeners through the same experience that Art and I had in reading that Current Opinions paper with this you know, a series of amazing cognitive behaviors that arthropods can do. And there must be 20-some examples in the paper, and we don't have time to go through them all. But can you tell us something about the sort of subtleties of web construction and spiders that could give listeners a feel for the amazing cognitive things that these organisms can do? Yes. Um, so I think spider webs, for example, are a classic example of um, an elaborate construction that superficially looks... Um, like it might easily be programmed as some sort of algorithm because it's obviously repetitive until you um, inspect more closely the versatility and flexibility of spiders in, in producing such webs. And um, so, for example, if a, a regular healthy spider has eight legs, and it turns out that if um, nasty experimentalists remove one or two legs, perhaps I think even three, they still spin the same web. Now that must mean that they use their extremities in completely different manners to generate the same kind of outcome. So this is not any kind of proof of um, uh, an awareness of a desirable outcome because you could just uh, perhaps implement as many hardwired routines as uh, as as an animal is likely to experience limb losses during his life so maybe you mean like you have you have a different routine for each kind type of limb loss that yeah. you could just activate eight legs yeah. do that seven legs do this mm. yeah right right exactly so that's one possibility but another is that that the spider has some sort of a a master plan of what the ultimate 
structure is meant to be and then adjusts its motor routines accordingly um, to, to get the desired outcome. And I don't think that we have the answer, but I think it's an, it's an interesting problem. Let's, let's turn now and talk about um, some of your recent work on bumblebees and bumblebee cog- cognition, um, a couple of papers in, in science and some other venues that just really impressed us. And, and let's, let's start by talking about the ball rolling experiment that you've done uh, that involves bees watching other bees solve a problem. So can you just describe... What, what you did in that experiment and what that shows about the way bees perceive the world. So we had previously um, shown that bees can um, solve a string pulling puzzle where essentially they had to um, remove an artificial flower that was displayed under a, a, a transparent a glass ceiling. That already impressed us, but it wasn't uh, in the broadest sense. I guess you could still classify that as a kind of obstacle removal task. So it wasn't full tool use yet, but it's getting in that direction. But what we were curious about um, in that ball rolling task was to was could we get them to manipulate a detached object um, from one location to another and use it essentially like a like a token in a in a vending machine or something like that. So um, we trained bees that if they removed, if they moved a ball from the periphery of a sort of horizontal arena to a, a central location that was marked with a, with a little circle, they'd get a reward. So not only were bees um, able to learn this task, but we found that the most efficient way to train a previously naive individual was by observing a, a skilled conspecific that had learned the, the technique in the past. And in terms of training times, like how long are we talking to learn? Are we talking, you know, minutes to learn this or days or longer? To, to learn the technique by observation, they could actually learn it in just three learning trials, each of which takes perhaps um, a minute or so. The bees that then copied the task, they were much more clumsy in terms of their technique but clearly they, they had figured out what they were meant to do. Lars, is it typical? I mean, when would bumblebees engage in anything like this rolling behavior in nature? Is there some context that this would be valuable? Um, we didn't think so. <laughs> well, that's why I'm asking. It seems to, the strangest thing, the bees rolling balls, where would that ever happen? Yes. So and I think one um, particular philosophy in designing experiments about animal intelligence is what you what you want to do is you deliberately put them on the spot with tasks that they wouldn't naturally encounter so then this makes the ball rolling all the more well the results that you find with one bee learning from another because it's ball rolling it makes that all the more interesting do you want to talk about that dimension of the study so i mean not only is it fascinating for us that that bees just by observing other individuals can learn a task like that but what was even more remarkable to our minds was that the naive observers were were found a better solution than what they observed the demonstrator doing there were three balls available what the demonstrator did was always roll the ball furthest away from the target zone 
that demonstrator had learned that the, the, the balls that were closest to the target could actually not be moved. They were just glued to the surface. So on three occasions, the um, observer bee watched a demonstrator bee solve the task, but the demonstrator always used the, rolled the furthest ball to um, the target zone, and then both of the bees got a reward. And then we put the observer on the spot and asked, okay, now how do you solve the task? Now, if these observers were simply aping the demonstrator technique, they'd use move the furthest ball in the same way as they'd seen it three times. But what the um, observers did instead is to move the ball that was closest to the target area, um, almost um, invariably. Yeah. You, huh. you can almost imagine them watching and thinking, you know, that dope, why is he like <laughs> choosing the ball that's the furthest away and the hardest to move? <laughs> I'm going to do this much better. <laughs> Let's um switch over and spend just a little bit of time on a, a more recent paper that you've also done with bumblebees that had to do with cross-modal object recognition, which is a mouthful. Um, do you want to describe that quickly and sort of use it as a transition mechanism into thinking about insect consciousness? Yes. Um, so I guess to um, zoom out a little bit. Um, so people have been aware now for a few decades that bees are good at learning all kinds of visual patterns. But some scholars have expressed doubts about whether they're actually seeing these patterns as a whole, as a kind of little virtual image that's floating around in their heads as a kind of representation, or whether they just uh, responded to certain features of these patterns. Um, and indeed, that's uh, in a sense an attractive um, idea because you can actually show through modeling um, information processing in the insect visual system that a whole lot of seemingly complex pattern recognition can be done with very simple so-called feature detector neurons. Um, for example, there are certain neurons that respond most strongly to certain edge orientations that just measure how much of a particularly angled edge is there in a visual pattern. And it turns out that a lot of really um, seemingly complex pattern recognition can be achieved with just two types of such edge orientation detector neurons without any assumption of the image being memorized or even perceived as a whole. And so what we had in mind when we did this experiment on cross-modal recognition is that um, if it's essentially a task where you recognize or learn to recognize an, an object in one sensory modality, for example, vision, and then recognize it in another um, modality, for example, in this case, touch. And I think in one of your articles, you, re you relate it to humans. So we know we have our keys in our hand when we put our hand in the pocket. Exactly. So that's a similar task. And that's a, a task that essentially we confronted our bees with, that um, they either were, they learned to um, associate spheres and cubes, either the one or the other shape with a reward in the visual modality, but they could not touch them. So these objects were displayed under a plexiglass screen. 
in the visual modality. Um, and when the bees successfully had learned to distinguish one shape from the other, they were then subsequently confronted with it in complete darkness, um, where they were not able to see the objects but could touch them. And we then asked, well, which object do you then prefer? And the bees that had been trained um, to recognize uh, cubes in, in, in the brightly lit condition, but where they couldn't touch the objects, spontaneously preferred cubes in complete darkness, and those individuals that had been trained to be rewarded on um, when seeing spheres underneath the um, plexiglass screen could subsequently find the spheres um, in, in complete darkness. And we then reverted the whole experiment where we first trained the bees to um, recognize the shapes in darkness and then asked could they then would they subsequently prefer the same shapes in a look but not touch condition in bright light again under a plexiglass screen and again the answer was was yes and, and so the inference is that regardless of the modality that they're using when they learn something about an object they're constructing a mental image of that object which is then accessible to other modalities exactly so this sort of task couldn't to my mind, at least, be solved with some sort of simple feature detectors that just um, signal have a certain um, signal combination for round or edgy objects from within the visual modality. Um, but there seems to be some sort of a representation that's accessible from for different modalities, which does indicate that there is a kind of awareness of the thing that's round or the thing that's edgy um, in the bee's mind in the broadest terms. Well, let's, let's move now to a, a somewhat different question. So we've, we've talked about these co complex behaviors and cross-modal cross uh, behaviors that bees are demonstrating. And, and I'm, I'm totally convinced that bees have uh, a complex repertoire as do other arthropods. Um, do you think bees are conscious? Um, probably, yes. Um, so, I mean, that is a notoriously difficult question to answer in, in any animal. There's no agreed formal proof of consciousness in anything. So the, the question can, can only be... Um, asked by or answered by using some guesswork, some common sense, uh, some assessment of probabilities and so on. And the ways in which animal cognition researchers explore that um, question is by contrasting it, for example, with uh, a view of animals where, where animals are just entirely stuck in the present or asking whether in addition to that they have um, a library of, of memories that can be um, accessed flexibly, where they can recall episodes of past memories, um, asking whether animals can in some way plan for the future rather than responding to just present stimuli, but also um, questions about, yes, whether there are internal representations of um, the world around the animal um, by asking also whether there is a kind of emotional world of the bees, whether 
Um, there are subjective states that can in some meaningful be, way be, be compared with human emotional states, for example. And for several of these um, questions, the answer for bees is um, yes, there seems to be something like this. There seem to be um, things like emotional states. There seems to be something like in, uh, internal representations. Um, there seem to be, um, in bees and other insects, some indication that they um, can plan for at least the immediate future and foresee um, outcomes of um, their own actions and so on. You could, of course, um, produce a machine that could solve all the tasks that um, have so far been devised uh, by researchers to um, to um, to be solved by bees. But can they solve the next thing? Can they could could a robot um, pre-programmed say to solve a string pulling puzzle and a and a ball rolling task um, also solve? Previously unexplored things that um, that that researchers haven't um, confronted bees with yet, and that I think is the critical question. So, so if we if we link this back to the um, the ball rolling problem and the, the sort of the cross modal recognition of objects, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that that the bees' success at those tasks is is sort of one one element. Like the like in the cross modal uh, experiment, the idea is that they have a mental construct of these objects that they can they can use very flexibly, and and in the ball rolling experiment, they're they're watching other bees, they're observing it and inferring what they need to do to solve a task that they previously have not encountered before. You're saying that that neither of those things by itself is any indication of of consciousness, but that they they indicate a kind of planning and flexibility that is is a prerequisite for for consciousness. Is that is that a fair characterization? I guess so. Um, so I think it's um, also important to recognize that the fact that there isn't an agreed single proof of um, consciousness um, in non-human animals or machines. Um, is not necessarily a reason for us to give up and throw our hands in the air and say, well, sorry, that problem just can't be solved. So I think a common sense approach to that question is one where you you simply accumulate more and more evidence in one or the other direction. And so the, the answer might not be a simple yes, no, now we have a definite proof um, kind mm -hmm. of um, scenario, but unlikely. one where you accumulate gradually pieces of a puzzle that nudge probabilities in one or the other direction. Consciousness is a concept we covered in episode 37 when we interviewed Eva Jablanka and Monsi Ginsberg about their book, Evolution of the Sensitive Soul. They argued that a trait called Unlimited Associative Learning, or UAL, is a promising marker for the origins of consciousness. A good example of basic associative learning is the way that Pavlov's dogs learn to associate the sound of a bell with food. UAL goes a bit further. Organisms that exhibit UAL can combine multiple inputs to make a prediction, and they can take lessons they've already learned and apply them in new situations. We asked Lars whether he thought UAL played a role in the evolution of consciousness. Um, it's tricky. Um, so I think the, the question is, so associative learning in itself is almost certainly possible without consciousness. Um, but 
I don't well the argument that um, they are making I think is not any form of associative learning means consciousness but unlimited associative learning um, and then the question is how do you define unlimited what's unlimited associative learning I think that's um, that's that's difficult to to decide so there are clearly forms yeah. of associative yeah. learning that involve forms of awareness or consciousness I agree with that but um, does it have to be unlimited can you is it a requirement that you can associate anything with anything to um, for it to be conscious that I don't know So, so I, I can't resist asking a last question too, and this also um, is something we talked about with Jablonka and Ginsburg, and that is the the distribution of consciousness in animals, and and where where are the limits, right? So, if you think that bees have a form of consciousness, um, would you agree that then all all insects in some way have a form of consciousness, or all arthropods, or where where are the phylogenetic limits of of where it's it's fair to call minds and behaviors conscious. Um, we don't know that yet. I think because we're we're relatively early um, in these investigations to make any kind of generalizations that extend beyond the particular species um, that we've been testing. Um, but there is perhaps a good argument that's also been made by. Peter Godfrey Smith and so on, that some forms of consciousness might have arisen very early on in the animal kingdom, um, perhaps even before more intelligent forms of um, behavior might have evolved. Why are they making that argument? Because I guess any form of movement um, requires you to... Um, make predictions of sensory input that, that will emerge as a result of your own intended actions. To give you an example, a simple example, if um, if I ask you to put your, your head to one side by 45 degrees, then um, the entire visual scene tilts by 45 degrees, yet that is, in, in this case, an un, um, undramatic um, result um, that that you you don't you w wouldn't be particularly alarming yet if the same way if your your building suddenly tips over by 45 degrees because of the result of an earthquake it's exactly the same visual stimulus on your retina but in that case you better get out of the building fast um, or get to the rooftop um, um, so the, the point is that in one case you're aware that the sensory input of the scene having tilted 45 degrees is a result of you making an intentional action, whereas in the in the other scenario, it the stimulus has come stimulus has come from the outside world, and so perhaps the the the, the, the earliest forms of some sort of awareness of the outside world versus your self generated sensory input or self provoked sensory input happens already at at the, these early stages of. Um, of animal movement and animals needing to disentangle sensory input. Right. So so consciousness arising from that very sort of fundamental distinction that 
moving animals in their environments must must have. Yeah. Um, whether that could have resulted in early forms of consciousness where intelligent behavior is actually um, added on much later is, is an interesting hypothesis. I don't have the answer to that. Um, but I think for, for, for there being more decisive answers to such questions, we really need to have more large-scale comparative analyses um, to see if we can sort of open a window into the past and reconstruct yeah, um, agreed. ancestral behaviors from having a variety of extant animals' um, cognitive performances that might indicate consciousness. Wow. Uh, Lars, I think that's a, a great place to leave it. What better position to, to stop than sort of a call for more comparative work on something that gets people so excited and um, yet still, even though thinking about it for years and years, we still have so much more to do. Um, the last thing that we, we do, though, is, is give you the chance, in case we didn't touch it, um, is there anything else that you would like to say? There's a lot of awareness, public awareness now of the, the plight of bees. Um, many people are aware that, the, that bees are under threat, not so much honeybees, which are largely domesticated, but uh, lots of other wild bee species are under threat from habitat loss and um, and um, man-transported diseases and, um, and of course, pesticide use and so on. Um, and I think um, people are aware that we need bees to pollinate our crops and so on. And so there's a, there's a, um, an argument for their conservation from that angle. I think um, there is a very sharp contrast with how people perceive the need for conservation of iconic mammals such as whatever, Siberian tigers and pandas and so on in part because people sympathize with these iconic mammals. They think that these animals are aware of their um, suffering and their demise and their habitat destruction and so on, and and for that reason are motivated to help them. Whereas um, bees are, are perceived as useful, um, but, but not necessarily um, that there is a need to um, for their conservation from the angle that they're actually creatures that might be aware of their environment and, and, and so on. And so I think that's a useful argument that's emerging from our research that, that I think there is an additional perhaps um, argument for bee conservation from, from the angle that they might have actually simple emotions and experiences of the world around them that might also mean that they're suffering, for example. Um, so that I think is is a, is a kind of applied angle of our research that might be might be worth generating some awareness for. Unlike Descartes, Aristotle thought that the souls of living things fall into a hierarchy, with plants at the bottom having the least sophisticated souls and humans at the top. If Aristotle could have met Descartes' dog, Monsieur Gratt. He probably would have put the dog somewhere in the middle of that hierarchy, but surely above insects. In his treatise on the soul, Aristotle noted that insects have, quote, sensation and local movement, and if sensation, necessarily, also imagination. But Aristotle stopped short of saying that insects can think, a distinction that he reserved for humans alone. Aristotle's ideas about the soul were an important influence for Jablonka and Ginsberg's book. 
And if you like this episode, you should really check out that conversation in episode 37. We'll post a link on our social media channels. The music you're hearing right now is from Lars's alt-rock band, The Killer Bee Queens. You can find all their music at killerbeequeens.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Season 3. It's great to be back, and if you like the work that we're doing, make a donation to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com bigbio. You can also go to bigbiology.org to make a one-time contribution. If you're low on cash, no worries. Tell your friends about us over social media and tag us on your Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook feeds. On the next episode of Big Biology, we talk with Kate Wong, senior editor at Scientific American Magazine, about her upcoming article, The Origin of Us. Kate's article covers the way our ideas about our evolutionary origins have changed since Darwin's time. Modern Homo sapiens, um, I think pretty much all anthropologists would agree, um, makes its first appearance in, in Africa. Um, and we've seen this date get pushed back farther and farther in time. And right now, the, the sort of oldest um, Homo sapiens fossils on record are around 315,000 years old. Um, they're from Morocco, so northern Africa. Thanks to Matt Lois for producing this episode. Ajinkia Dahaki manages our social media accounts. Dana Baxter transcribes our episodes. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on this episode is from Pottington Bear and the Killer Bee Queens.